Well, my friends, today we come to the first chapter of the book of, or the epistle of 1 Peter. And last week, when we were together, we took probably three-fourths of the time, which I think was very good for all of us, to remind ourselves of our patron saint. Who is it that has dealt with the same humanity we've had to deal with? Who is it that was called to represent Christ in his life and suffered for it, and yet glorified his Savior in all of his body and actions and the spreading of the gospel? And this St. Peter prays for us. And I wish I could go back into some of that because I, I really I've reflected on that actually throughout the week on our discussion together. And we are so blessed to have a patron saint like this interceding, coming alongside us and interceding for us. Um, we also discussed the when and the why the St. Peter's first epistle was written. If you remember, it's not far unlike from a scenario the reason that Hebrews was written. Because both of them are writing into persecuted areas of the church. The Hebrews were specifically, Hebrews was written specifically to the Hebrew Christians that were undergoing the Jewish persecution and just beginning to see the Roman persecution. St. Peter writes the epistle, uh, the first epistle, while in prison in Rome because they are under persecution of Nero, that Nero had started. And I want you to get a feel for this. Here you've been to Pentecost, some of them. The gospel begins to spread not only to the Jews, but now beyond to the Gentiles who are experiencing Pentecost in their baptism, being filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaiming the gospel in their very lives. Their lives are being changed eternally by the work of the Holy Spirit within them. And now all of a sudden your entire country has set itself against you has set itself against the faith you've been born again into. This is very foreign to us. Not one person in this room, I don't care how much news you've read, throughout all the years, for the exam, for example, throughout all the years of the persecution of the church of Rush, in Russia under communism, which, by the way, yielded the greatest number of martyrs of any persecution, Jewish or Christian in all of history. There were more Russian martyrs that died for their faith while their whole country had set themselves against. They were doing no different than the early Christians going into the underground areas. Many of them were worshipping in graveyards, just like the early church worshipped in the, in the uh, catacombs. But they had to, they were forced to. We can't fathom this. Because we have never experienced this to that degree. And yet this is what is being written into. These people are facing imprisonment, torture, and martyrdom. And the apostle with his fatherly and pastoral heart is pouring Jesus Christ to them at the moments of the beginning of their, mar of their martyrdom and their persecution. And that's what First Peter is all about. And he encourages them and he exhorts them. In this epistle, he is going to remind them of how to stay firm in the faith, leaning on the great cornerstone, Jesus Christ, being made living stones, each one of you. That you keep your eyes set upon Christ. And we're going to see that today, even in the first chapter. He says the whole key, almost, of enduring martyrdom is where we fix our eyes. We're going to see that in the first chapter of 1 Peter. But this is what he is writing into. Why do I think it's so applicable to us? 
not because we're experiencing that degree of persecution. But make no mistake that the country we live in today is forming itself towards the persecution of our Lord Jesus Christ through His church. Make no mistake. How far will it go? We don't have a crystal ball. But we do know that the country is more and more beginning to set itself more against truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. To set itself towards humanism where everything true emanates from the individual. In other words, there is no truth. All different ones. And so I think it's good that we look at 1 Peter, listen to our patron saint, in how they walked through this type of persecution to learn how we stand and glorify God even at these moments within our own country, when our country begins to set itself more and more against. We're not totally there yet, but you see it going that way, yes? I mean, you all see that. It's frightening. It is. It's frightening. Things we haven't seen in our country before when it comes to... to uh, freedom of Christianity. The country's always stood for freedom of religion, but it's starting to take away the freedom of Christianity. Okay? So I think it's good for us to be looking at this at this time. So let's begin. We, we took the first couple of verses as an intro last week. Let's begin 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Deacon, I believe you have that. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when He testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So these first verses beyond his introduction... These first verses, you need to see, begin with a resounding praise of our Lord Jesus Christ and a resounding praise of the ones He's writing to being brought into Him. And St. Peter does this intentionally. Think about this. They're experiencing persecution where their faith is being tested by fire. What fire? Not the fire of persecution. That's, That's what's causing it. But what ultimately is the fire that's testing their faith? 
their own humanity in the persecution. That's the test, you see. And they're being tested in their faith. So what does Peter come out with? The same thing that we begin all prayers with. If you look at the, our Lord's Prayer, the whole first three quarters of the, of the Lord's Prayer, when His disciples asked Him to pray, is about Him. Praise to Him. Focus on Him. What's Peter doing? He's using this beginning of resounding praise to redirect the eyes of their soul. Because if the eyes of their soul are wrestling in their own humanity in the fear of persecution, the fear of what may happen, wrestling, am I going to deny Christ? This is very real for those in persecution. Am I going to deny Christ to save my own life? See, the fire is in their humanity. And they're wrestling. So what's he's do, what is he doing? With great praise, he's fixing their eyes off of their humanity, off of the circumstances surrounding them, and back upon Christ. Listen to his words. And I'll add just a few things here and there to make sure we understand what he's saying. Blessed be God, who has given us a living hope. And what's that hope? This Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. And what does this offer them? Even if they're martyred. What does this offer them? Eternity of paradise. The sting of death. If Christ the resurrection is placed before me. The sting of death is abolished. We gain an incorruptible and undefiled eternity that has no end. Reserved in heaven for you, he says. And even better, he says. One that is kept by God through faith for us. In other words, you suffer now. I know you're suffering now. I'm in prison suffering now. And to what end this suffering is going to go, we do not know. But we know we are suffering. But this suffering is so fleeting. And even if God glorifies Himself through you in martyrdom, your suffering will be so fleeting to the eternity that you will gain from having glorified God. You see how He's redirecting them to the blessed hope of every Christian. The very central hope of our faith. That eternity begins now and it does not end. And death is nothing to the Christian. You get that? That's the thrust of what he's trying to say here. Great thanksgiving for all that's been done for them, what your inheritance will be through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm going to read to you, and I'll read, I'll, I'll read from St. Bede, otherwise known as the Venerable Bede. Uh, he was in the late 600s to around 735. But listen to what St. Bede has to say about that first part. He says, It is right for us to bless God because although on the strength of our own merits we deserve nothing but death, He has regenerated us by His mercy to a new life. He has done this by the resurrection of His Son who loved our life so much that He gave Himself up to death for our sake. When that death was overcome by His resurrection, He offered it to us as a model which might give us hope of rising again ourselves. For He died in order that we should no longer be afraid of death. And He rose again so that we might have a hope of rising again through Him. 
That's the hope that's being placed before the eyes of these who are living in such fear and anxiety at this moment. And then he makes that great statement that this hope of the resurrection, this faith that we live in, this experienced faith, it is being kept by who did it say? Who's keeping it? God. Being kept by God through faith which is your union with Him. God is keeping it. The Venerable Bede speaks to that as well. St. Bede says, Our inheritance is imperishable because it is a heavenly life which neither age nor illness nor death nor any plague can touch. It is undefiled because no unclean can enter into it. In other words, when we pass through, our Lord cleanses us, like Paul says, as those escaping through that purifying fire. The eternity is undefiled. It is unfading because the heavenly blessings are such that even after long enjoyment of them, the blessed never grow tired, whereas those who live in earthly luxury eventually have their fill and turn away from it. In other words, you want everything that will satisfy the human person, which you've not touched if, you've, if you have relied on the things of this earth, the things of this world. Think about something. If you are undergoing persecution and the threat of martyrdom, think of a lot of things that might be common going through your mind. If you were about to face your death, whether it's through martyrdom or anything, what kind of things might be going through your mind at that time regarding things of this world? Think about it. Your family. Your family. Absolutely. Which is not a negative thing to be on our minds. It's love. And yet, that very love can cause us concern. Look, when I, when I go with people, as they pass through the veil, these are very common concerns they have on this side. And it is out of love, but it causes anxiousness sometimes. Because of their loving concern, you see. So they're focused on these things. And some, it's sometimes in that time to remind them of the love they have for their family, but to help them tilt their head just more to the right, back in the right direction. You'll spend eternity with your family should they remain in Christ, the blessed hope, your eternity, their eternity is all joined together. So concerned about family. But there are those that would be concerned just about some very human things, not necessarily all evil things. And Paul is saying those things are the things that never satisfy us. He even mentions the luxuries of this life. If people are hanging on to the luxuries and enjoyment of all that we have in this life to be their source, it never satisfies and they keep needing more luxury. He's saying this eternity that I'm speaking of, this blessedness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we are now in and welcomed into, that's the eternal. That's the eternal. He continues, St. Bede, Your place in the kingdom of heaven is ready. Your room in the Father's house is prepared. Your salvation in heaven awaits you. All you have to do if you want to receive them is to make yourself ready. But since no one can do this by his own efforts... 
Peter reminds us that we are kept in the power of God by faith. Nobody can keep doing works in the strength of his own free will. So we must all ask God to help us so that we may be brought to perfection by the one who made it possible for us to do good works in the first place. So when Peter says that this salvation, this resurrection, this home prepared for you in eternity is being kept by God, he's also saying, remember, through faith. Kept by God through faith. How do the two things dance together? God is keeping it. God is desirous that you inhabit that place forever and be with Him. What is our part? That's the faith part. Because faith is real relationship. It's not a contract. It's remaining in Him. What's He saying? Prepare your hearts in this time. Refix your mind upon Christ and continue to prepare your soul by remaining in Him. Repenting of your sins, letting Him heal you. Coming to Him as those empty and in need, letting Him fill you. What's He saying? Even in the midst of this, be the virgins that are keeping oil in their lamp so they don't miss the bridegroom, you see. That's the encouragement that we're hearing from St. Peter and as expressed through St. Bede. And in verses 6 through 9, the deacon read, it's as if Peter was saying, now having said all of this great praise, he continues, and listen to his words, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. What trials? The persecutions. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see Him, you believe. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, The salvation of your souls. He's setting us to praise in the midst of trials. This shouldn't be uncommon. We know another scripture that you could probably pick out written by St. James that speaks this exact same thing. When St. James writes in James chapter 1, my brethren, count it all joy. Count it all joy. When you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But let endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Why? St. Peter answers that question. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with the joy inexpressible and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith... The salvation of your souls. So if Peter is redirecting our eyes back upon Christ and calling us to a diligence of faith, which we're going to hear more of in just a few moments in this chapter, I want to put to you a thought. I am convinced that so many of our spiritual problems... So many of our weaknesses spiritually stem from having our eyes set in the wrong place in this life. Stem from a life lived 
allowing ourselves to be distracted into all things non-eternal. Getting our eyes off of the Christ who is above the circumstances and onto the circumstances of our lives. The people that wound us. The things that we don't like about our job. The things that drive us nuts in life. That make us anxious. The fears that we have because of the circumstances that are now surrounding us. They produce fear and they produce anxiety. And all along, when we're being hurt by others, when we're having fear and anxiety, when we're being discontent in this life, our, what, are, what are we fixing our eyes on? I want you to think about this. When you have those types of struggles or any of life's struggles, how much of your time is rushing before God? with great praise that changes our focus. To bring ourselves back in line with the one who's over all of this and who has every bit of grace that we need to walk through all of this. Is our eyes typically fixed on Him or is it fixed on the circumstances? Circumstances, if we're honest. We spend much more time with our eyes fixed on the circumstances. My friends, is there any doubt then That life feels like, even spiritually, that we're walking through this life with spiritual shoes of concrete. Like drudgery. You know? When our eyes are not fixed on Him, and we allow the circumstances to be the focus that drag us down. Huh? It's drudgery. And this is not the life of a Christian. Do y'all, is it just me or do y'all struggle with that? I do. We yeah. all struggle with it. Yeah. It's real hard. Yeah. I think we struggle with it. But I think there's, I think there's, I'm just saying from lots of work experiences, I mean, there's things you have to look at in the circumstances and you have to deal with. Oh, no, there's no question. And I think some of the times the not dealing with what's in front of you mm-hmm. is causing, you know, the circumstances to override you because... Mm-hmm. You're not willing to look at it honestly and call it what it is. I agree. You know, you've got plan X. You might have to go to it in your life. You might not like it. You've got to be honest about what the heck's going on in front of you. That's right. I'm glad you said that because fixing our eyes on Christ doesn't mean we're not operating in the daily within the frustrations. He doesn't take away the frustrations. I mean, generally ill people are going to die. Yes. They have to get back to looking at Christ, but they have to look at that too. Because if they get caught up in the distractions of the falsehoods of uh, false hopes, then they're dragged down a big old stream of just distraction that just gets worse and worse and worse while the train's coming at you. And wouldn't you agree that if we fix our eyes on Christ, no matter, even in dealing with what we're dealing with, it's not a false hope, right? No, it's not. Right. And so see, but you're exactly right. In fact, remember, and I'll mention this in just a minute, but, you know, Peter in the storm. Right? Scared to death of his death. Right? Very anxious. God never took away the storm. He didn't. And yet his eyes were fixed on Christ. And by that, what happened to Peter? He was brought up within the storm to where Christ was and operated through the storm from that position. You see the difference? And so it's not ignoring the storm. You're exactly right. It's not, we're not talking, and please don't hear this, denying life and playing some kind of escapism of Christ. That's not what He does. He goes through it with us. He undergirds us. 
He graces us. Because none in this life are going to escape tribulation, turmoil, pain, suffering. That's not what our Christianity teaches. Which is why we hear St. Peter saying, Joy inexpressible in the midst of these trials, even if your trials feel like fire. St. James saying, Consider it all joy when you meet various trials because of what is produced in you. I will tell you this, I've learned from those, when I watch those folks, so full of faith that when they're going through even the most extreme things, I mentioned it before, back in New Orleans, uh, some blessed Middle Eastern women that were going through cancer, some older ones, and yet such peace going through it. And yet you could just see the grace of God carrying them through their suffering as they were attentive to Him. Kept their eyes focused on Him. That's what Peter is reminding us of. You see? He's not saying, the per- oh guys, you know, focus on Christ, persecution will go away. That's not what he says. He says, it's here. What are we going to do? Blessed be God who is the resurrection. Focus on the one that matters so much more than this minute suffering that we're going through. Let Him be present in the midst of it and show you eternity beyond. Does that make sense? That's a good point. I'm glad you made that differentiation. I never want to think, because there's so many teachings out there, and they all kind of come under the category of prosperity gospel teaching, where we fix our eyes on Jesus and we're blessed, 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 blessed. It's in your definition of blessed that they get it wrong. I'm blessed when I'm suffering trials if I'm in Christ. No less than when I'm having the most mountaintop moments of life. Right? No, that's good. And I do find it interesting. You know, Peter Peter is in the midst of an extreme trial, even for his own life. And he would be martyred in the not-too-distant future after writing this epistle. He was in prison going towards his martyrdom. One of the things I always find fascinating is how God is so attentive to us and so loving to us to prepare us for trials and tribulations. Let's think about this. I mentioned to you a minute ago, Matthew chapter 14. They're all in the boat. And they're all fearing for their life. They feel like it could end at any moment with the next wave that comes by. This is the anxiousness that's in all of them. And our Lord Jesus Christ comes walking on the water out to them. The one who had created the water, created the wind, and done all of this. The Word of God walks out to them on the water. And and Peter calls out, Lord, if it's you, because they think they've seen a ghost. Lord, if it's you, call me. Let me come out to you. And at the calling of Jesus Christ, the invitation of Jesus Christ, we know what happened. Peter got out of the boat, which in and of itself is a testimony to his faith. He got out of the boat. His eyes fixed on Christ. It says he was where he was. He walked on the water just as Jesus did and stood there with him. Then we have noted for us that he failed for a moment. He went back to his weakness. And isn't this like us? Ebbing and flowing 
in weakness and great faith, in concern and weariness, where we're focused on life circumstances compared to the times we're focused on the Lord who is in and above all of the circumstances. And Peter takes his eyes off, looks back at the waves. What starts to fill him? Not peace, not joy, not grace. But his eyes are fixed on the circumstances, fear and anxiety. That's what he was drowning in far more than the water. And he sunk into the water. You don't think that this... And then Jesus rescues him even there. And he gets him back into the boat safely. Jesus is aware of our weaknesses of faith. Jesus is aware of our anxiousness. All of our shortcomings, our fears. He knows how to meet us in every one of them. But what did he do for Peter here? You don't think that he prepared Peter by this event how to suffer through trials? You don't think this would be a standing stone event in St. Peter's life? That all the times that he would be put in prison or beaten or ultimately martyred, that he didn't know where to fix his eyes upon from that very thing that occurred to him on the water? And I say to you that God is no different for us. Our Lord knows how to meet us where we are, improve our faith by His experience for the next trial that is to take place. Why? Because I think all of us would attest to this. I sure will. That in the most times of suffering in my life, I have never seen Christ as clearly. I have never experienced Him as fully as in the times of suffering. Why? Because all of us are too dead gum prideful and pig-headed to see Him clearly when we're all rejoicing and everything's going fine. But when we start suffering, then we actually start calling out for mercy like we ought to be doing every day of our life. Help me, Lord. The simple prayer. Right? God knows how to bring us to Himself. And that's why. That's why He's saying rejoice. Because of what happens in the midst of this. Let praise be on your lips. By the way, that's the same thing that King David would do in the Psalms. It's one of those Psalms that I love where he is going through turmoil. I mean, King Saul is seeking to kill him because he knows he's going to be the next king. He's really going through it. And so he writes this Psalm. And in the Psalm, he's saying all the complaints to God. Woe is me type of things. He literally, written out, woe is me and... I'm a worm and all these kind of things and all the things around me. Help me, help me. And then all of a sudden, he says these great words. Why so downcast, O my soul? So he catches himself. Why so downcast, O my soul? But then the next words are important. Put your hope in God. In the midst of all the suffering he was going through, he catches himself in his weakness. Why? What's wrong? What is it? Why should I be like this? Put your hope in God means fix your eyes back on Him. Put your hope back where it belongs. And then the funny thing about King David, as human as the rest of us, he slips back into all the woe is me and complaining about his life situation. Then later on he comes back to it again. Why so downcast, Oma? Isn't it like us? You know what I take great hope in? Great thanksgiving in? Is that that man... David, King David, the one Christ would come through the line of, was called a man after God's own heart. God knew how to meet David and redirect his eyes 
back upon himself. Okay, who has 1 Peter 13 through 21? Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. All right, so follow the pattern. Great praise, the call to refocus ourselves back upon Christ in the midst of suffering. And secondly, being reminded that God works in your suffering to produce an endurance of faith. Okay, And therefore, it is a joyous thing to us going through it. Not the circumstance itself, but Christ in the circumstance. Now he says, therefore, gird up. What do we do about this? Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That phrase, gird up your loins. Know what it means to those folks because they would understand it then. Father Lawrence Fairley, uh, again in his commentary on the Gospel of St. John, he puts it this way. They They are urged to gird up the loins of their minds. The image of girding up presupposes the clothing of that day. People wore long, loose, flowing robes, and before they could do any work, they would gather up the robe and tuck it into their belt so that they would not trip. In urging his hearers to gird up the loins of their minds, Peter urges them to prepare their minds for action. The world will challenge them, and they must prepare themselves to meet the challenge. Gird yourselves up. You can picture that, those loose clothes being drawn in tight before you can actually do any work or you end up falling all over yourself. What's he really saying? Pull yourselves together. <laughs> in a way, spiritually, pull yourselves together. Get ready. Make yourselves ready. Get your mind off of your anxiousness. Put it upon Christ and get ready. Get ready. Uh, Korea Debbie was reading in the Orthodox uh, Study Bible, wasn't it? Tell, tell them what you saw about this. Well, it was the same, similar thing. It just said, um, it said that during Passover, like the first Passover, when they were eating quickly, they were supposed to be sitting with their loins girded, like they're ready to leave whenever the um, angel of death passed over, and then they were released to go. You, you know what I'm talking about in the Old mm-hmm. Testament? And so the, the imagery was that, we should be prepared to walk in that place that God has for us to walk, whatever it is. And 
and I think it said in virtue and in peace, I think is yep. what it said. Something virtue like and that. peace, that's so right. Just always being prepared to continue walking in virtue and peace, always guard your mind. And <laughs> a little side note on that, <clears throat> someone like me that has a really active mind, this is a really great image because it's easy to feel like you're getting trapped in your own thought processes and your own um, ways of doing things, and you can easily get tangled up in all that, and, and you're not free to walk in the grace that God has for you because you're so in, in, entangled in those things. So yeah. it's a challenge for me. And the girding but, up is the mm-hmm. prevention of the mind going everywhere mm-hmm. on its own. Mm-hmm. You see? It's a real focus on the effect. That's the, that's the reason why St. Peter chooses another word just after that. Listen to what he says. Gird up, your lo- gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Be sober. Um, you've heard me say this before, but there is a virtue that is a fruit of the Holy Spirit that is absolutely necessary for both physical and spiritual and emotional sobriety. And it's the, it is the fruit of the Holy Spirit we call self-control. Self-control. And how much self-control, I'm glad you said that about our mind going everywhere, because this is what anxiousness does. And it doesn't matter if someone is naturally that way or not. Anyone that gets fearful and anxious, the mind starts running rampant, doesn't it? It does with me. Gird up your loins. Tuck it all in. Self-control. You know what it is? It's what St. Paul says, take every thought captive. And the church fathers, they say this about taking every thought captive. The Greek word of thought is logizmi. And the logizmi thought is that pinprick of a birth of a thought that comes by some influence. So some outer influence hits us in the face, life. Somebody says something that affects us in a certain way, does something that affects us. The logizmi is the fleeting pinprick of the birth of the thought that one of two things is going to happen. We're going to take it captive and bring it before Christ. Again, turning our attention to Christ. That thought gets brought to Christ and we take it captive. And Christ shows us what to do with that thought. Or what's the other alternative? Who's the one that's going to take cap- get taken captive? We are by our thought. And then our actions are going to follow. And we have chaos ensue into our life and our mind. And that's what he's saying here. In all of this turmoil and all of the fears of the persecution for these folks that he's writing to, rejoice. There's, there's what you do with your thought. You take your thought and you turn your attention to Christ. And you rejoice and you stay steadfast in His presence with you. And you allow Him to grace you through it. And that's where the calmness stays with us. I'm going to skip to one more thing because I really want to cover this. Who has 1 Peter 1, 22-25? Please. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren... <coughs> Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flowers 
and its flowers fall away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So now he begins getting off of, of necessarily just the idea of how are we going to fix our minds on suffering, during suffering. And he's calling them back to the reality that regardless of what's going to come ahead by this persecution, all that everyone is facing, you must continue to live as the church, the body of Christ. He's now going that direction to call their attention back to, you keep being who you have been baptized to be. Filled with the Holy Spirit, knit together. Listen to what Father Lawrence Fairley says about the commandment to continue loving one another. And I love the way that he expresses this. Since they've been so redeemed and have in obedience to the truth of the gospel purified their souls in baptism for an unhypocritical brotherly love. Let them fulfill this baptismal obedience and fervently love one another from the heart. Community is the purpose of their incorporation into Christ. They have purified their whole lives, their souls. Peter here thinks primarily of love between Christians in community rather than love of outsiders, though that is necessary too. His main focus is love for the brotherhood and the preservation of the Christian unity. This love and unity are important because their baptism made them all brothers, united by the indestructible bonds of brotherhood, for they have been regenerated by baptism, not from corruptible seed, but incorruptible seed through the living and remaining Word of God. Men receive natural birth from seed which is corruptible and mortal, and merely natural life on earth will eventually end. The seed which gives new birth is incorruptible, and it begins a life that will never end. For the seed is the Word of the Gospel. It is living, it is eternal, and it remains and abides with us forever. Therefore, the ties of kinship that unite Christians, therefore, surpasses anything on earth. You know, we, we, we have that little say, saying that we say every now and again around here, that the blood of Christ is really thicker than the blood of our families. That's what that's expressing. That the beloved love of God be so manifest among us, paramount to anything else. And I think Peter has an inkling of knowing that if they, whether they end up martyred or not, if they will abide in the love of God one to another, Christ will glorify Himself here now and through their martyrdom if He sees necessary but by the love and the bonds of love in the body of Christ. I think that's precious to see. Even in the, why is he, That's the first thing he stresses about the body of Christ in the face of persecution is their love for one another and their unity. I, think, I find that fascinating. We might want to note that, huh? And continue in it. Let's stand.